The Gospel, A Basic Truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family-oriented sport with Christ-centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand-in-hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. We are at another episode of the podcast series, The Gospel of Basic Truth. Today, it's my privilege to interview Jim Woodman. Hello, everybody. Uh, Jim had a distinguished career in academia and in the corporate world as a consultant. Uh, He retired, and then he and his wife, Lynn, got involved uh, as senior missionaries with the Southern Baptist uh, Mission Board. And he lived overseas for uh, several years, he and his wife, and he has quite a fascinating story to tell us today about a man named Jalal. And he was uh, from Iran, and Jim met him in Cyprus, and uh, Jalal um, came to accept Christ as Savior. This is a bitter, bitter sweet story. Jim, you and I met at the uh, uh, seniors ministry at the Woodman Valley Chapel, the, the Monument Campus. And you and Lynn are in uh, leadership there, and you lead the uh, worship time, correct? Yes, we are the worship leaders for the seniors. So what kind of music do you, like rap, uh, rock and roll? <laughs> ah, yes, that would really go good with seniors. Uh, so many of them listen to that. Uh, but no, we are um, focused on um, hymns because majority, in fact, I would think almost without exception, all of our members are, uh, they grew up with hymns. They learned, they probably became Christians through the words and the music of hymns. So when music, when hymns are sung, uh, it resonates and it's a real a feeling of worship, and so we um, we focus using hymns. All right, now could you uh, maybe describe for us um, what the ministry entails there at Monument? What what what's the vision here? Well, the main idea behind the uh, at Monument is, is similar to. Uh, at the other campuses of Woodman Valley Chapel, we have uh, uh, groups there as also senior ministry um, uh, people, but it's focusing on people who are, you know, in um, probably grandparents, uh, people that are uh, are in, in an age where they're re- probably retired. Uh, they may be uh, widows or widowers. Uh, they may be. Um, living alone and, and want to be near. In fact, we have quite a few of our people that are uh, living nearby, um, uh, adult sons or daughters, because they need help and need to know there's somebody that can help them if they need help. And it's just the idea that as you get older, uh, there are more things that illnesses and health issues and perhaps financial issues that happen and so our group, the idea behind the seniors group is to not only to get together and have fellowship and worship and Bible study, but to be able to be there to reach out and to fill the gap, so to speak, of the needs that some of the people have that maybe they can't get met through their own ability or the ability of their, their children. This ministry, you have, you have a lot of widows, don't you? Yes, we do. And in fact, uh, I was trying to get that number so I could say what it was today, but but at least, without any question, well over half, probably 65 percent, 
and that's a large number. 65% of, of the, our attendees are widows, and we have only about five uh, widowers. So it's a big ratio of women alone um, versus men alone. How can people get involved in a senior's ministry if they're not a senior? Well, right now in, in, in ours, and if you were to read the brochure that we've produced, we, we tell people we're, we don't check your ID when you come in and see how old you are and if you're old enough to be in seniors. <laughs> you will know if you want to be in seniors. And the idea is that we have some, at least one lady that I can think of right now, that's, that's, she's only about 65, and, but she loves working with seniors. And so she's there almost more there to be a helper than she is just to, she's not there. She has a husband. See, so she doesn't need it, but she's there because she loves senior people and she wants to work with them. I know. I think the uh, the oldest member of our monument group is what 102. Yes, and she just passed away, and her funeral is Friday. Right, and but I noticed how her uh, daughters and granddaughters would take turns bringing her to the seniors group and you know that that's a, it's a big help when you can't drive right yeah and we know this lady very well and and we my, my wife and i uh, the, this is part of what fed our desire to be involved with seniors was um we took her to legacy the uh, senior group at the main campus at rock rim and we took uh, this lady whose name is jerry uh there every week uh, week to pick her up and took her and brought her back and we did that for three years. And so, um, and, and in just being with her and talking with her and hearing her pray, it's an amazing lady, and um, that, was, that fed our desire to want to help more people like Jerry. Certainly when uh, my wife and I were first Christians, we'd been married 10 years, and we got involved in a church that had um, a lot of godly people, a lot of seniors, we had retired missionaries, and it was amazing how much the seniors put into our life. And so it's not a one way when you're serving seniors. Mm -hmm. it's, it's two ways because they have so much to offer you. Um, my father died when I was 33, and, and I have to admit, I could have done a better job as a dad. It, it was hard. And one of the older men uh, in that church at one point, uh, he was a retired truck driver. You know, and I was a lawyer, but we were good friends. He was older, and he, he took me aside one day, and he says, you're, you're too hard on your son. You know, and, and he was right, and I, I often thought, maybe I should have heard that years earlier, you know, <laughs> and if my dad was around, maybe I would have heard it. So, And I've got other stories like that. But So it's a two-way thing. When you get involved, it's not just you helping somebody out. You will get much in return in, in a senior's ministry. Well, that certainly is true, and it was certainly true with, with Jerry. Um, you know, it, this is a lady that could hardly walk. She had a walker, and, um, and you know, it, she was in bad shape. And, but when she get into our car and we would drive to church or back from church, uh, she would start asking questions about each one of our children. Well, well how, is, how is Jimmy doing, or how is so-and-so doing? And um, tell me about that son, a grandson of yours that's in the band in high school, and she just remembered things which amazed us given her age. Like, like we just said, she was 102 when she died, and 
Wiener from she, the time she was six, 96 to, to the time she passed. And I just never was, I was always amazed at how much her mental abilities were. But just asking the questions like that just warmed us so much that she would remember and ask the question. And she would remember what we said last time, which still amazes me. Uh, many, many years ago, my brother and uh, sister-in-law were attending at uh, Southern Baptist Church down in Texas, and my sister-in-law got involved uh, with a group of um, uh, very uh, elderly widows, and so she ended up leading a Sunday school class, and I don't know, there was maybe nine or ten of these ladies, and my sister-in-law didn't have any training about how to teach or any of that stuff. But they got them all together on Sunday morning, and they had tea, and she did what she did. But it's what she did during the week. Every week, she would call her ladies and let them talk Mm -hmm. for 15, 20 minutes. And that was the highlight, really, of uh, because they knew somebody cared, and they could talk. And I think that we we really uh, misjudge uh, senior people if we don't think that that is a major... um, joy and pleasure and desire that they have because I don't know of any of them that I've worked with that wouldn't tell you that they want to be around people they can talk with and so one of the ways you do that with senior ministries is you provide a lot of social places that where they can get together socially and it could be over food or it could be over going to the park or it could be anything and it's a way to keep people connected and and to find out how how you're doing and uh, do you need any help and things like that? And and that's the the interchange that that I see in the really healthy uh, senior ministry. All right, Jim. I want to transition us now as we walk into the story of Jalal. And could you tell us how you got involved in the Southern Baptist Mission Board and how, you know, why why'd you do it? And where'd you go? And what were you supposed to do when you got there? <laughs> okay. Um, we lived in North Carolina, and I, and we went to a Southern Baptist church there. And one of the th- and I was involved in missions uh, director of the church and uh, had a Sunday school class that I led, or actually I brought in missionaries that spoke at the class. And anyway, I got to know a lot about the Southern Baptist Missionary, uh, missionary Board. And one of the things they had then, and I don't know if it's still done now, but they had to where a person could retire, you know, like at age 62 or whatever, could apply to the mission board and go through the same um, process that, that a career missionary that's 20 or 30 years old and then be appointed to a two-year assignment to do certain specific things wherever the Southern Baptist missionaries were working. And so we, um, my wife and I, when we got to that point, and we were still in our early 60s, we didn't feel we ready to hang up the shingle yet. And so we chose to, to sign up and, and apply for going to mission board. And we were accepted and got a two-year assignment to go to the island of Cyprus and to work with um, a, a couple that was there that were working with uh, refugees coming out of Iraq. This was at the time when... Saddam Hussein was uh, building it up before we got into the war, and a lot of of, of Iraqi uh, people, um, particularly professional people, were being persecuted and put in prison, and so they were escaping to Jordan, and then they were trying to find a way how to get to safe passage, maybe the U.S. 
So we were there as a missionaries to work with them and to lead them to Christ as, as part of helping them find uh, the, the, a way out. And so that's how we got to Cyprus. And so we were there just as hands and feet and <laughs> whatever else they needed to be done because we, did, we didn't go there with any particular skills sets that were needed to do missionary work. So you got to Cyprus, and you were working with, uh, ostensibly with people from uh, Iraq. Uh, now, there are a couple other people groups that you worked with as well during that time. Well, in um, Cyprus is a really international place. If you go there, you will, uh, we, we were in meetings in which we could count 12 pe- people from 12 different countries that were all together, Christians in this case, and that was, and so it was a hub of, of that. And when we were there, um, and again, our job was not to do this, but we did it. Uh, there was um, some Iraqis that, I mean, excuse me, Iranians, Iranians that had just graduated from college, and this was during a time when money was very scarce in Iran. People were starving, actually, believe it or not. And so the, there was a group of a, approximately maybe 14 uh, Iranians who all got visas to come to Cyprus to work in the orchards and vineyards and, and as produce things. And so you, they all uh, came to Cyprus. It was there that I met one particular young man who had just graduated from, from the university, Tehran, and he had gotten a Bible somehow in Iran, and he didn't understand what it was. It was in, he, the Bible he had was in his language, but he made a contact with somebody that we knew and, and said, is there anybody could help me understand what's in this book? And that's how we got, I got to meet Jalal. And the only reason I got to meet him was because I was the only one left in town at that time when he asked the question. All the other missionaries were out of uh, Cyprus, and I was the only one left in there. Jim, there was something when you and I were talking about doing this, and now you were over there for what eight years? Oh, uh, we were there. We were on Cyprus for two terms, four years, and then we were also in uh, Spain, Morocco, for uh, almost two years. Now, one of the funny things you had told me was um, you went over there, and each time you were told these are the tasks you're going to do. Is that what you did? <laughs> <clears throat> well, when you, as I was saying, that when you say you want to go on a mission field, and these were short-term things, like maximum of two years, and then you were, you know, that was it, and they paid you minimal things. You didn't really make a salary. You just made your costs of being there for you, utilities, food, etc., and so on. We were signed uh, a job that, that we never did. And the funny thing about it was we, we were called and we went there to do this job. And, but when we got there, they found something else they thought was more important. And we ended up doing that instead of the one that we went there to do. So we, you know, it's kind of like we, uh, we really didn't. But we, under false pretenses, we went for one thing and then we did another. But one of the, the main one that I think that you're talking about uh, is the, the one with Jalal because we went there to work with Arabs, and Arabs speak Arab, Arabic. <laughs> Iranians speak Farsi. <laughs> and um, so suddenly, uh, we were, then my wife and I, we were involved in the international church, Lemassol, and I was one of the teachers at the, at the, at the church. 
And anyway, um, Jalal, uh, our friend Jalal from Iran, he came and he asked somebody, is there anybody who can lead me through this book? I'd like to understand this Bible. So I was the only one around in town at that time, and so I met him, and we came to, brought him to home, fed him, <laughs> and we began this relationship where, with his Bible um, and, and me with my English and no Farsi speaking, um, but he could speak enough English to understand what I was saying. So we started meeting each week, at least once a week, and studied the Gospel of John. And I picked John because I thought this would be the right one because it's, a, it's a, a warm story of the life of Jesus in a way that I thought would be really useful for Jalal, and, and it was. So now you met with him every week, and now did he uh, at some point go with you to the, to the church there, the International Church? Yes, well, he, you know, he was not... Um, he didn't initially. Originally, we just started um, meeting he and I one on one in in our apartment in Limassol, and then I, because I was involved in leadership of, of the International Christian Fellowship Church, uh, I invited him to come there, and so he would come and sit in the audience and listen to us seeing the English speaking people and so forth and so on, and then we had a, a another small Bible study group that we met with that were international group and we had six different nationalities in this Bible study group and we were meeting again in our apartment and Jalal, and we invited Jalal to come. So Jalal would come and sit quietly listening to the discussion, answering the questions from the Bible from these different people and then we always closed with a word of prayer that around, around the room with people wanted to pray, they could pray out loud and pray for things they needed and so forth. And Jalal, in all the times he had come, never said a word, never made a noise the whole, the whole time. And then this one time, suddenly at the end of our uh, time of praying, all these people, they heard we heard this little, I'm going to say squeaky voice in English, um, pray out loud and thank God for Jesus. And, and everybody in the room was just floored because we've never seen any, there had been no indication that Jalal had any interest in faith or that he understood it, but he did. And so there was this mad rush to go and hug him and, and just, uh, we couldn't believe it. And so that was how Jalal um, became a Christian. So what comes next is his jumping into the Christian life. Could, could you tell us just, you know, some people you know, walk down the aisle and their the life never changes, but his life changed. Well, I have never in all my life, um, being in churches, ever seen this happen before. But one of the things that happened was that Jalal was so on fire as a Christian that he saw the other 12, 14 other Iranians that had come when he did and were uh, farm workers as lost. And so he began, and it was his mission, uh, to go to each one of these other 12 or 14 Iranians that were on Cyprus and lead them to faith in Christ. So he, every evening after he would get off of work, he would go to somebody's house or meet them in a park or he would do something and read the Bible to them and talk to them. And lo and behold, we've suddenly ended up with about 14 Iranians who were all brand new Christians. And it was all due to Jalal. 
And one of the big surprises of Jalal, and there are a couple of other what I'd call God things that, got, that happened with Jalal, was that Jalal, when, when I, I was an elder in the church and when I reviewed the, uh, the Iranians who all wanted to be baptized after they became Christians, and invariably every one of them, we did them individually so they weren't talking with each other, but every one of them talked about that there was something different about Jalal. And most of them said, you know, when I talked with him at the park and we were sitting on the park branch, behind him was this guy in a white glowing robe. I thought you were a Southern Baptist. Uh, <laughs> so and you're telling us about a miraculous well, thing here. But he didn't see it. And so when so we Jalal didn't see it. Jalal didn't notice it. And and we went to I went to with him at several events with Iranians and and they saw something with him when he was with me and I didn't see it. <laughs> so I guess maybe I wasn't spiritual enough. I don't know. But anyway, it was really amazing. And so when we baptized um, all these Iranians and we baptized them in the Mediterranean Sea and asked them all these questions and invariably um, out, would come out of their, their discussion how it, at some point, at least once, uh, they saw Jalal with this, this guy wearing the white glowing robe. And, um, and that was one of the convincing things for them to make their faith in Christ. Jim, that, that is such a head-scratcher for us here in North yeah, absolutely. America. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, now, you told me about how after Jalal said, you know, he prayed to accept Christ. Uh, tell us about the baptism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we took our time and we went through it. And, and, um, he, and he, you know, obviously the Bible says that anyone who believes that you should be baptized. And... He he wanted to be baptized, and it it was the winter time. It was like, it was like November, uh, and it was cold in Cyprus. Even though it's a, a Mediterranean island, it was cold, and and most of the times we would do the baptisms in the Mediterranean Sea, <laughs> even colder. But so we suggested that well maybe he'd like to wait till the springtime when it's warmer to be baptized, and he said no, I want to be baptized right away. I want, pe- I want people to know that Jesus is in me. So I arranged for a hotel, uh, one of the tourist hotels, that had an indoor swimming pool, if we could come down and do a baptism, and they said yes. And so I was free, I was had the pleasure of, of leading my brother uh, Jalal in baptism in a pool <laughs> in a hotel in Limassol. And friends, if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, you got to listen to that story, right? Yeah, I mean, that, you need to do that. And uh, well, they, he didn't—he didn't believe he was a Christian until he was, and and and, and so he—he—that's he, why he was so urgent about wanting it. He didn't want to wait two or three months where the water got warmer. He just wanted it. And all the other Iranians, when they became Christians, they wanted the same thing. Wow. All right. So Jalal was with you a short time. He was only there six months, right? Yes, he had a visa, this agriculture visa that the Cyprus government issued so that these Iranians could come there and work. Um, it expired. Uh, he had, I think, it, I'm not sure how long it was, but anyway, it became time. In fact, we had a real problem with all the, we had about 14 other Iranians who became Christians and was, how can, how can we help them? Because they didn't want to go back to Iran where they knew that they would be persecuted, maybe even killed because they were Christians. They would come as Muslims, then return back as Christians. 
And so we worked hard to find places that would take uh, that would take an Iranian that could migrate there and immigrate there. And so most of the um, Iranians that had become Christians, they went to Canada and to Australia. And so the, the only one that had not dis- made an ma- effort and signed the papers to get out of S- Cyprus and go to one of those two countries was Jalal. And he said, I want to go back to Iran. I want to tell my mother and my father and my brother and my sister about Christ. I want to lead them to Christ. And we kept saying, well, Jalal, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, <laughs> and then he had to get a new passport, and on the passport, they ask you what your religion is in the in Iran, and and he came over to Cyprus as a Muslim, and he returned as a Christian on his passport, and we just all said, you know, it wasn't wise, Jalal, don't do that, don't do this, and he says, I got to do this, so he did. He went back to Cyprus, and I mean, back to Tehran, back to his family, and uh, and there's more to come. All right, so he he gets back home. And he tells his, his family, his mom and dad and sister and brother, how did they deal with that? Well, that's one of the things, and we don't know a lot of the details about it because he was the only one that went back, and, and he led his parents and his brother and sister to Christ. We know that because a lot of people told us that. Uh, he also did something that would be incredibly, you'd say, that's not very smart, and that was he became a Bible salesman. <laughs> He had a big bag, and people would tell us about it, his big bag full of Bibles that he would sell to Iranians. Um, and, 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 he, and he'd be on a bus, and police would get on board and start inspecting everybody's stuff, but they never seemed to say the, the bag with the Bibles in it. And he, he just, everybody kept saying he's just living a charmed life. They don't see what he's doing. Well, any, anyway, he did get picked up, and he was found guilty, and uh, found guilty of what? Of be, I don't know what you call it when proselytizing. Proselytizing. <laughs> I don't know, but anyway, he got in big trouble, and so he was arrested. And what? He went to this famous prison. It's the one that you see in the news all of the time now, where they put these dissident stuff. And it's the number one prison, and and people, and it's torture. It's there's the stories that in there that you can't believe uh, about that prison. But that's where he was in, put into prison. And after that, he, we lost contact with him, and he never left uh, that prison. As far as what we were told by other Iranians that were in Iran was that he died in prison, at this prison. But he, but he gave his life for Christ. And uh, the, the number of uh, Iranians that were affected Plus, I have to say, all the all the Westerners that were in the island of Cyprus were greatly affected by Jalal. But God did amazing things in Jalal, and closest thing we'll probably ever see to what a, a supernatural type miracle thing that God did. So, Jim, this is um, it is a famous prison and infamous prison. We know there was torture there. He was very much. He was tortured, and he was either killed or, or died of the torture. I, I think we can say he was a martyr. He was. Well, we know where he is. Jim, you obeyed God. You witnessed to this man from Iran. You saw the changed life after he accepted Christ. And then he, against worldly wisdom, goes home because he wants his family to know Jesus as Savior. 
and he's martyred. How did, how did that affect you? How, how, how do you deal with that knowing that you let him to the eternal life and he died in the process? I think one of the things that, for me anyway, and I think if your goal is to be a missionary in a, in a country that's a Muslim country or maybe even a non-Muslim country and you recognize the danger that you face uh, and you make that decision you're going to do it, then you have to deal with the fact that if God allows the enemy to take your life, then it's God's will. And we saw other examples, not, not nearly as dramatic as with Jalal, that it certainly was, um, you have to say, well, God allowed this to happen. And I have to believe that, like even right now, telling this story about Jalal to an American audience, I mean, hopefully it will make a difference to somebody, and hopefully it will lead them to looking harder at Christ and and if they're going through some difficult times right now, it'll make them easier for them to go through it. I believe there's a reason for it, and I think this is how God works. And He used Jalal like this in a way that we it's hard to imagine. But but we heard other stories where we're overseas too, and other uh, martyrs in other countries besides Jalal. So uh, this is unfortunately, or or fortunately, this is the way sometimes God works. To my listeners, I'm going to say. 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's, it's about believers before the judgment seat of Christ. Not judgment to get punished, but an evaluation and rewards are given out. And so the verse says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. And we also know in Scripture that mm. we, we read about five gold crowns that are given out all right i'm only going to talk about two of them today we know from first corinthians 3 13 through 15 that all of our works are tested by fire now that's a metaphor just simply they're looked at what did you do that has value in the eternal kingdom and what did not and so People get, uh, they go through this testing, they go through this evaluation, and some people will earn, will earn crowns. Now, after we go through the judgment seat of Christ, we will be at a time that's often called the wedding feast of the Lamb. Our Lord Jesus will be there with every believer through time. And it's going to be a great party. And I tell you, there's going to be a table there or you're going to see Iranian Christians. And you can recognize Jalal, even though you've never seen him. If you go by the table, you will recognize him because he is wearing what's called the crown of life. This is the martyr's crown. We read about it in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear any of those things which are about, you are about to suffer. I cannot imagine being in that prison in Tehran, i got to say. Our Lord says, do not fear what you are going to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You may have tribulation 10 days. And then it says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jalal is going to be in heaven. I mean, this suffering that he went through was bitter, bitter. But on the other side, it's sweet. And when we're all before the throne of God, he gets to put that martyr's crown in front of Jesus. 
to honor Jesus. Now, I'm looking forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb because many people that were saved when I first got saved have gone home to be with the Lord. I look to see, I want to meet those people again, and I hope to do that at the wedding feast. I, I know that Jim is going to find that table. And he's going to go up and he's going to get a big hug. And then Jalal is going to turn around and he's going to say to the people at the table, I want to introduce the man who led me to Jesus. He is your spiritual grandfather. There's going to be a lot of hugs. And you can recognize Jim because he has what we call the crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown. And we can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. This is Paul talking to the the believers in Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Friends, Jim's going to be wearing that crown. Now, I hope that none of you need to be martyred or have to be martyred. But the Lord will walk with you through that. But I do pray for each of you that you will be soul winners. Always be prepared in season and out of season. Be able to explain the reason for the hope that you have. And I pray there is a crown, the soul winner's crown waiting for you. All right, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this incredible story. I, I thank you for Jim's courage and bravery, willing to tell it again. I I would like you all to take this to heart. Lord Jesus, pray for these people that you would bless them and, and lead them in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.